Hallelujah. Father, we recognize even with the record of the incarnation and moments of significance in the ministry and the coming of our Lord, even at Christ's birth, that the eyes of those whom your Spirit touched, awakened, alone recognize God becoming a man, taking on flesh, being born of a woman. What appeared to most as a helpless babe in impoverished conditions, in a lowly manger, in truth was King of kings and Lord of lords, and well-deserved an entourage of the hosts of heaven, proclaiming unto you is born this day a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Lord, I pray that our eyes would be opened by the proclamation of your word to the perspective of those early worshipers, the shepherds of old, who saw beyond the humble clothing and the meager conditions on that glorious day to behold the King of kings and Lord of lords. Come as man and come to die in order to ascend and to rule and reign with even greater manifest glory, if it could be said than before, having, defeat, having defeated the devil, death, and sin upon his finished work of redemption from Calvary to glory. Lord, today I pray that as the scriptures are opened and proclaimed, you would write them on the tables of our hearts, encourage our souls, and open our spiritual eyes to see the ascended Savior and all his glory and power our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning is our second Sunday of the month, and typically we've been working through the Psalms. I'd like to preach on a Psalm today as well, but take a brief break from our Psalm 119 series. And skip ahead to Psalm 148, which will be our primary text today, under this title, Cosmic Invocation. Ah, that sounds so cool, Cosmic Invocation. Some of you are like, what does that mean? Here's a subtitle. A heavenly call to worship, that's the cosmic, a call, an invocation call to worship, a heavenly call to worship the Creator, Savior. Psalm 148 calls all creation to worship, things that are in the heavens above and on the earth below and even in the depths of the sea. Kids, I have a pop quiz for you this morning and I'm gonna hold the microphone in your direction. You guys shout it out if you know. Where is Jesus now? Awesome, that's incredible. I'll ask you that question one more time and we'll see if you can shout it out in unison. So kids, where is Jesus now? Incredible. The kids are correct, and they, have learning, they were learning this in Bible school, and as uh, they were rehearsing this, my kids, on the way to church this morning, I thought, what? I just couldn't help but say amen after each practice run. The question being, where is Jesus now? The answer being, he is ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Is that correct, kids? Did I get it correct? Awesome. I see some nods in the audience. Praise the Lord. So the question is this, what kind of worship does our Lord deserve on account of that very fact? Where is Christ now? He's ascended into heaven and he sits enthroned in all his glory and majesty and all his exaltation 
and the worship that, what kind of worship on account of this position does our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ deserve? Well, Psalm 148 answers that question by issuing a cosmic, heavenly invocation call to worship. The aim of this morning's message is to echo the call to worship occasioned by the advent of Christ. And my argument will be that Psalm 148 corresponds and overlaps in prophetic anticipation with the incarnation itself in the events of Christmas Day and the work of Jesus as it continued in Him taking on flesh. It occurred to me last week that I had stumbled upon an Advent theme. Our passage last week was Jude verse 8, and there we drew a contrast between that which identified the worldview of the unbeliever, represented by Sodom, and that which identifies the worldview of the believer, represented by the shepherds on that glorious night when the angels revealed to them that a Savior had been born to them that day. In the one case, the the glorious ones, the angels delivering the message, are blasphemed by the wicked reprobates of Sodom. In the other, the glorious ones who deliver this a herald from glory, this message from the heavenlies that a Savior is born, they are heeded, and there is fear, and then there's obedience, and then there's worship of that Savior they proclaimed. So in the one case, the glorious ones are heeded, in the other, the glorious ones are blasphemed. Well, it strikes me that there's many uh, places in Scripture where the magnification of events of the Incarnation is all the greater given cross-references in the Bible. So following our parallel study of Jude 8 and the testimony of the shepherds on the occasion of Jesus' birth, I've decided to continue with the Advent theme, something like the significance of incarnation events, such as the angelic visitation, heralding the birth of the Messiah, magnified from scriptural cross-references. So the significance of Jesus becoming man, incarnation, magnified from scriptural cross-references, And today that cross-reference is Psalm 148. So out of reverence and with your Bible and hearts open, would you stand with me today for the reading of God's Word as you are able? This is Psalm 148, verses 1 through 14. Hear now the Word of God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created, and He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. 13. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people, praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near him, near to him, praise the Lord. And let us echo that last refrain, saints. Let, let all God's people say, Praise the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you noticed this, but I have in the back of my mind as I read Psalm 148 
drone footage. Drone footage, a bird's eye view, a sort of airplane or overview. Uh, I'm sure many of you, if you haven't been in the aircraft, have appreciated that perspective in a movie or a shot. It becomes more common with the advancement of technology to get that perspective, that panorama, that bird's eye view of a piece of real estate that's being sold or maybe the Grand Canyon as you watch a documentary on television. The poetic of movement of Psalm 148 is a, something of a descending invocation. It's the perspective of glory coming down to earth. And as it does so, that message, that call to worship goes forth. It is issued first from the throne of glory with the message to the angels, let's say, or any legitimate emissary of God's gospel, go forth and proclaim the news and call all creation to worship. So, th so from the throne room of glory, the decree travels through all the realms of creation. The call to wor worship is echoed and heeded in each domain as the message condescends to earth. The call first reverberates through the upper registers of creation. Praise the Lord from the heavens, in the heights, the angels and the hosts. And then it plummets to the depths of the seas. Praise Him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. The call to worship splashes into the depths of the Marianas Trench and plums the deeps of the mysterious underbelly of God's oceans as the call to praise reaches even those weird sea creatures down there, as it is just moments before echoed in the ears of all the hosts of glory, which answers, answered obediently on Christmas night and proclaimed glory to God in the highest and then that decree arises again from the oceans to summon the weather systems. And so we see fire, hail, snow, mist, stormy wind called to fulfill His Word. Then we see from this vantage point the decree descends yet once again to the mountains. Now we're on the terraforma, the earth, the hills, the trees, the beasts, the livestock, the creeping things. And then it arises once more upon the earth to match the flight of birds, and then finally alighting upon mankind himself and all categories of humanity listed until finally children are summoned to praise the Lord. As I mentioned, views from aircraft, drones, and even low earth orbit satellites provide sweeping overhead perspectives, and these come to mind as an illustration when one sings Psalm 148. We're compelled, I would submit, by this vantage point of sovereignty. We find something compelling and intriguing of being lifted up to see with a panoramic view what is before us. And thus, these, uh, these uh, features in technology hold our attention. These establishing shots in movies and these Google Earth images and so forth. I suggest the reason why we are attracted to these, among other things, is that we retain in our cultural memory something of Eden's mountain. We find in the Word of God in Ezekiel 28, 14, that the situation of our habitation lost in sin was in fact on a high and exalted plain. Eden sat upon a mountain. And from that vantage point, one can imagine that we could see across God's creation if you were Adam, if you were Eve. Eve. Yet we have fallen from Eden's mountain. 
both in geographical position, but worst of all, in our sin and our spiritual condition. We seek, therefore, in some way to be freed from the confining shackles of our banishment, and thus even our experience and our eyesight appreciates that being lifted up to retain once again something of what was lost in the fall. But there is a real substantial hope for this to be returned to us, not just the feeling of Eden's Hill, but the reality of communion with God Almighty. And this hope is foreshadowed in the imagery and prophecy of Psalm 148, even as it is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Think of Ephesians 2.6. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. This is the picture of Psalm 148, the condescension of the Messiah to ransom a bride, to lift her up, to be seated with him once again in a redeemed, in an exalted position, to retain that perspective and that habitation of God with us, Emmanuel, Eden's glory and beyond. Passages like these in Psalm 148 alleviate the anguish of one like Solomon, who though he was commissioned by God to build a temple, in the end, 2 Chronicles 6.18 exclaimed, But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. If the true Jesus Christ, if the true Messiah, if the second person of the Trinity, if the incarnate Son of God commands the worship of the heavenlies, is there any hope that we could be welcomed into his habitation? Well, the hope of Solomon is fulfilled, not in a temple made with hands, but indeed every believer who becomes the true temple when the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit through regenerating the human heart, renders us presentable by the saving blood of Jesus Christ in the presence of Almighty God. And thus, by these means, we are lifted up out of our sin to be seated in heavenly places, enjoying that panoramic view of, of uh, our souls and indeed all creation one day redeemed. The arc of Psalm 148's cosmic call to worship the Creator's Savior, this is mirrored in the condescending herald angels that night of Jesus' birth. They heard that instruction from glory, go tell those lowly shepherds that my son is born. And so they dove down, as it were, from the realms of glory and proclaimed to creation and all who would hear and those with eyes to see that that night was born to them in a lowly manger, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And by these means, there would be peace on earth and goodwill to those with whom he was pleased. That night, Jesus' birth fulfilled uh, in, in the first instance what was necessary for the dream of Psalm 148, Solomon's temple, and what was lost in Eden to be restored and more. Thus, a fitting call to worship was echoed on that glorious night. Praise the Lord who was born of the Virgin Mary. This morning, let me give you a heading and four segments of Psalm 148 to emphasize these kinds of fulfillments and this kind of glory we see as we tie the threads of Scripture together. Yahweh commands worship first from the heavenlies. Secondly, Yahweh commands worship because of creation. Thirdly, that would be verses 5 through 6. Thirdly, Yahweh commands worship from the earthbound. 
verses 7 through 12. And finally, our Lord Yahweh, the uh, reference in Psalm 148, commands worship because of salvation. So two uh, subjects that are called to worship, and then two reasons. First, the heavenlies are called to worship. Secondly, the earthbound. Then two reasons, because of his creative power, and secondly, because of his salvation, his recreation power, if you will. First of all, Yahweh commands worship from the heavenlies. Verses 1 through 4, we hear this cosmic invocation, this heavenly call to worship the Creator Savior. Praise the Lord, verse 1. Praise the Lord where? From the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Other realms are called to give glory to the Lord. Praise Him from the heavens. Let the heavens filled with innumerable stars, galaxies beyond counting. And no matter how far we look with today's technology, we cannot even imagine the end of this universe. Perhaps it's eternal, some say. Perhaps it's expanding. Perhaps it's forever. Perhaps, well, we see in our day today, just as in the times of old, the vast expanse and the incredible precision of the heavenlies is such that men are sometimes tempted to ascribe some metaphysical power to creation itself. That is, of course, always idolatry and always sin. But one might exclaim, well, how else can you explain the glories, the majesty, the expanse, and the precision of the heavenlies and the beauty and the unimaginable uh, uh, breadth of this landscape that at first, with just your eye at night, is too many stars to count, but then on second glance with technology proves to be far beyond you could, what you could ever imagine. And the answer is the glory of the Creator. If you're looking for one of the most amazing theaters to proclaim the power and the creative beauty and glory of our God, you need look no further than a single star. But you can look infinitely farther, almost it would seem, into the galaxies and beyond, and the comets and all of these heavenly bodies which scream glory to God in the highest. The heavens are a great theater of God's praise. Praise Him in the heights, praise Him from the heavens. This vast expanse and precise order proclaims the glories of the Creator. And more than this, from the beginning of time, the moment when the Word of God spoke these very things into existence, they waited as a theater, a theater for the Incarnation. That is, the heavenlies were a stage that was fitting to announce a particular event. When they were filled with the hosts of heaven, then uh, the purpose for which the heavens were designed was partially fulfilled and that the hosts of heaven would uh, uh, spread across the vast expanse of the skies, proclaim unto you is born this day a child who is Christ the Lord. You will find him wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The heavens, the vast expanse, the skies above the shepherds, this was a fitting stage to announce this moment of incarnation significance. A fitting stage to feature the preeminently glorious proclamation, the miraculous crescendo of redemptive history. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, has taken on flesh. More than this, He is born of a woman. More than this, you 
can find him, shepherd, lowly, commoner, and with him you can find salvation if you follow these directions and heed the call of the Messiah. And so they did. Celestial beings are called to worship as well. Verse 2, praise him, all his angels, praise him, all his hosts. And thus in the skies of heaven, the obedient angels shouted glory to God. I've quoted it, maybe not verbatim, the top of my head once or twice already. But in Luke 2, we find this account, this reminder from last week, and a good cross-reference for much of Psalm 148, verse 8, Luke 2. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with fear. This awesome experience caused them to shudder and quake in their boots, if you will, their sandals. But what have they seen thus far? Just one angel? Just one angel with God's glory shining around them? They hadn't seen anything yet. In verse 10, the angel said to them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. For what will be for a joy that will be for all the people. Now they hear the message. The message of joy and salvation that will reverberate through the ages unto all who would hear the message of the gospel, even to us, two millennia later. This message still rings loud and clear for those whose ears are open to its message. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so the glory of God's revealed truth is increasing by orders of magnitude. Verse 12, the angels continue, the angel continues to instruct, this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then the glorious experience of the shepherds already quaking with fear increases exponentially when in verse 13 we read, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. This, if you will, the first Christmas hymn, sung by a host of heaven's armies, rung in the ears until the day they died and beyond for each shepherd whose eyes and ears were open to the revelation of Christ born that day. But this was an answer to the commission the call from glory, that cosmic invocation, that heavenly call to worship the Creator Savior all the way back in Psalm 148. The Lord had proclaimed a day when angels would obey this instruction. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. And so on that day, on that night when Jesus was born, the angels did accordingly, fulfilling these words and more. They praised the Lord. They praised Him for the glorious incredible, earth-shattering miracle of taking on flesh and being born among us. Thus, from the heavenlies, Yahweh commands worship. He commands the worship of the realms which shine with His glory, testifying to His created power. He commands the worship of the celestial beings, angels, from the realms of glory. And from these domains beyond our immediate experience, which worship Him even at His birth, and thirdly, he commands the worship of celestial bodies. Verse 3, praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. For a cross-reference here and a particular fulfillment. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Now there are many ways that the heavenly bodies 
bring glory to the Lord and praise Him, a few of which we've already mentioned, simply existing and shining with that energy beyond calculation that God has invested into all the burning suns and all of these glorious phenomena that we see um, through the aid of a telescope. But there's a more particular way that heavenly bodies obey the instruction of the Lord to worship Him. And we read of this in the Christmas story as well. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Kids, a question for you. How did the wise men find Jesus? They followed the star. That's correct. The wise men followed a star. In verse 2, it continues, They asked, Where is the king of the Jews? And what gave them the certainty? And how did they know where to go? They say, For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. So you see this cosmic invocation, this call to worship the created Savior, the Creator and Savior, issued at the time, around the time of Jesus' birth in two ways and more. The prophets had proclaimed that he would come, but the angels announced the fulfillment. The heavenly beings on that glorious day proclaimed to the shepherds, he is here. But secondly, heavenly bodies proclaimed this same message. A star issued a message, somehow a bit mysterious to us, nevertheless, with certainty and with direction. Foreign dignitaries from the east, fulfilling ancient prophecy, followed this heavenly body, which pointed the way to Jesus Christ. After all, we learn from this, a fulfillment of Psalm 148, Yahweh commands the worship of realms, beings, and heavenly bodies. And when was this pictured more precisely and amazingly than in Matthew 2, chapter, or Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, when the wise men followed the star that was dedicated to direct them to the location of the Savior of the world. Finally, in Psalm 148, Yahweh commands worship from the heavenlies, the realms, the beings, the bodies, and even instruments. Verse 4, praise Him, you highest heavens, you waters above the heavens. Covenant instruments, waters above the heavens, whatever could this mean. Well, commentators are divided, but let me see if I can't draw some references from the broader use of things like water and fire and rain and God's purpose and message through them. Last week, we covered a bit of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there was fire stored up in the realms of the heavenlies, if you will, that was rained down as an instrument of judgment upon the unbeliever. In the days of Noah, you kids remember the instrument that God used to judge the earth? It wasn't fire, it was? Water, that's correct. Water is an instrument of the judgments of God. And it rains, as it were, down from the heavenlies on that fateful day and 40 days, in fact, when all the earth is swallowed up by the power of God, demonstrating His authority and consequences for sin. Nevertheless, God saves eight people as through water in His ark prepared, so sparing them as a picture of Christ through judgment. The rains in heaven are also a picture of God's covenant blessing, and there's other things in the heavens that picture God's covenant as well. Kids, there was a promise when Noah got off the ark that he would never flood the earth again. And what was the sign that God gave Noah? That is correct, a rainbow. 
Imagine you've all seen a rainbow, the direction of the arc. Now imagine that's a literal bow, like a bow and arrow bow. Now imagine an arrow of judgment fitted in that bow. Which direction is the arrow pointing? Is it pointing towards the earth or away? It's pointed away. Commentators insightfully have noticed that the direction of the bow, as if pulled taut with a string, points the arrow of God's judgment in His grace and mercy away from the earth. A rainbow is a picture of God's covenant blessing. Now there's only one way for that arrow of judgment to be pointed away from the earth. And what is that way? It's if Jesus stands in between that arrow and the sinner. It's because the wrath of God was absorbed by the Son of God that was born on that Christmas night that we can rest assured that the arrow of judgment won't strike us. But without that assurance, there is instruments of God's judgment that hang over our heads. The fires of hell eternal await the unrepentant just as the floods swallowed up the unbelieving world in the days of Noah. Let me give you one other fascinating thing. It's based on a creation science study I did with the kids. Now, there are those who have proposed a cataclysmic event to scientifically correspond to the account of Scripture in the days of the Great Flood. Imagine, if you will, the Earth's crust. Now, underneath, in a matter of miles beneath, there's a subterranean sea, an ocean beneath the crust of the Earth. Now imagine the finger of God pressing its weight, pressing his weight upon the surface of the earth. And now, as the Bible says, the fountains of the great deep spring forth. The weight of the continents of the earth would put such force on that underground sea that it would shoot water up, scientists propose, to reach the escape velocity of the earth's gravitational field. And if this is true, what this means is that there is ice in the heavenlies. There is ice in space as an artifact of the judgments of God, just like the oceans are an artifact of the judgments of God and ought to strike a sense of weighty reality in our heart when we look upon that vast expanse. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ, the ark that spares me from this deluge. And if there's ice in space as a result of this cataclysmic event in the form of a comet re-entering into the atmosphere, it too may well be an artifact of judgment that is water in the heavens, an instrument of God's covenant message that reminds us His power is so incredible that the only way to escape is to have assurance of a Savior who would die in your place. Thus, through these and many other ways, Yahweh commands worship from the heavenlies. And we read this in Psalm 148, verses 1 through 4. Secondly, and we'll, spend, we'll uh, move past this point quite briefly because we have more to cover and Lord willing we'll return to this psalm later in our series. Anyway, verses 5 and 6 give us a reason for worship. Listen again, Psalm 148, 5. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? For He commanded and they were created and He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. The Lord commands the worship of the heavenlies. Why? Because He is the God of creation. He is the Creator. He commanded and they were created. We see in the early days of the creation week that the sun that gave light by day and the moon and the stars light by night and these heavenly bodies for times and seasons where we can literally set our clocks by in this precise order. 
that we see in the cosmos and all of the universe. This exists. Why? Because God commanded. He gave His word. He issued His decree. Now, we've remarked a lot in recent weeks and years, I suppose, that in our society today, the word of God is questioned. The morality of the author of these words right here, Scripture, is up for debate in the minds of the wicked, rebellious, unbeliever in our culture today. Well, there is no room for argument. God will not suffer his own mockery. And those who question him will ultimately be proved the fool. How do we know? Because the heavens are a fixed order that prove that what he sets in place cannot be altered or adjusted by the whim or the reasoning of a rebellious unbeliever. He commanded, and the world systems were created. The seasons are beyond our control. The rising and the setting of the sun speak to a power greater than us and an authority that we cannot argue with, but we must, must bow before. He established them forever and ever. You could no sooner stop the sun with your own hand than you could break the promises of a covenant-keeping God. You could no sooner shoot the moon with your 22 and put out and extinguish its light than you could alter the course of God's purposes and His glory and salvation for humanity. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Three key words, command, establish, and decree. In creation, testify, in these, in cre with respect to creation, testify to the sovereignty of our God. His word is absolute, His order is fixed, and His decree is certain. And for these reasons, all creation, indeed the heavenlies, is called to praise Him. That heavenly call to worship the Creator goes forth, this cosmic invocation. Worship Yahweh, because He has established the fixed order of creation, which speaks to His nature and character and purposes for all time. Thirdly, Yahweh commands worship, not just from the heavenlies, because of creation, but also from the earthbound, because of salvation. Verses 7 through 12 now, that descending call to worship, remember that drone's eye view of the angels coming down, issuing this proclamation, worship Him, worship the Creator, worship the Savior. Listen to the trajectory again in verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, plunging the depths of the seas with this call to praise. And then arising to the weather systems in verse 8, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word. And then going back down, as it were, upon the uh, terrestrial areas, the continents, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, lower still beasts and all livestock, lower still creeping things. And then the call arising once again, a little higher to the flying birds. And then 11 and 12, descending upon mankind. And listen to the categories. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. What is the call? Praise the Lord. Psalm 148 opens with that command and closes with it as well. And in between compels and issues this edict to all creation, this call to worship, this invocation, worship the Lord. All creation, things in heaven and things on earth. Earthbound, perhaps we can break this into two categories. First, creation days 1 through 5, and verse 7 through 10. And then creation day, verses 11 through 12, number 6. Everything created on 
Creation days one through five is called to praise the Lord. What would that be? That would be the great sea creatures and all deeps. The watery depths, they speak to great mysteries. You know, there's a new movie coming out, Avatar something, The Way of Water, or what have you. The reason this movie will probably sell and break a new record isn't just because, you know, of James Cameron, whoever produced it, and the special effects that he uses, but also because there's a deep mystery about the depths. There's unexplored areas of the surface of the earth that only a few have seen and many have not seen at all. Many questions. Isn't it something some of the biggest creatures on this planet are, we know the least about? This is true of blue whales and giant squid. It's true of these luminescent deep sea, very interesting, odd creatures that are like a mile beneath the surface. If you had something that could withstand that pressure. The fish can survive, but we cannot. Not even close. And so the mysteries of the ocean have held out this kind of a lure for mankind through the ages. And so kids, as you read your fantasy books and tales of sea creatures, well, we saw this whale washed up on shore. I wonder what else huge and mysterious and powerful lies beneath the depths. And the ancient seafarers, and even today, if you don't respect the sea, it will soon teach you that you are a fool. It, it will all of the sudden, you know, even like these concepts like the Bermuda Triangle, swallow whole vessels and people are lost and no one can quite explain it. These are anomalies and, pheno and phenomena that are unexplained and they fill the legends and the lore of famous books and works of fiction with the intrigue of the sea. Well, it is this realm that God is sovereign over. And let me submit to you, a great study would be to look at the miracles of Jesus Christ and notice that in every category of creation, Jesus Christ performed a miracle that demonstrated he was sovereign over these. Kids, when did Jesus show that he was Lord of the sea? Does anyone know what miracle might show that? The flood? A miracle in Jesus' ministry that showed that he was Lord of the sea. And walking on water. Excellent. The depths that can't be plumbed by man or charted in our lifetime or explored in all the mysteries that are yet unknown to us, they are known perfectly and precisely. Every atom and square inch is mapped and it is within the sovereign control of the one who made them in the first place. He is the one who walked on the water when he was born a man and came among us, demonstrating that he is the sovereign over the seas. We mentioned weather systems. Was there ever a miracle when Jesus showed that he was powerful over the weather systems of the earth? That which causes an evacuation order. Everybody better get out of Florida and pretty soon island, you know, coastal regions and settlements are destroyed even this last year in one swell of the ocean's rise due to a hurricane. Is there anyone who is in control of hurricanes and systems and can possibly predict them without fail and absolute 100% precision knows every atom and molecule that, that makes up all of these ecosystems on earth? Yes, it's Jesus Christ. And when he spoke and calmed the storm, he proved as much. <clears throat> from, earth, uh, from the earthbound areas, God commands worship. And the watery depths worship the Lord when they obeyed the feet of the Messiah and held him up as he walked across their surface. God commands the worship of weather systems. And so they obeyed his word when Jesus Christ proclaimed, peace be still, and immediately the storm ceased its raging. The land and the plants are the Lord's as well. The fruit trees and all cedars are his. Thus when Jesus cursed the fig tree and said, bear no more fruit, instantly it was withered to the root. And when Jesus called the tree to bear once again, he demonstrated that he is the sovereign 
commanding the obedience and worship even of the fruit trees and of the bearing of plants in the field and so forth. He is the sovereign of creation. And creation worshipped him in each one of these miracles, so to speak. And we can go through them all, and we'll pause there, but just make this point, that everything that was established on the first five days of creation is a willing and obedient servant to Jesus Christ. What about that which was made on day six? Verses 11 and 12, how about the kings of the earth? Do they obey the Lord like the fig tree does? Absolute obedience instantly upon the issue of his word. How about all the peoples and the princes and the rulers of the earth? Do they drop what they're doing and pay attention when the word of God is proclaimed in their hearing? They immediately cease from their activities and are all ears when he announces his gospel. What about the young men and the maidens and the old men and the children? Well, saints, there are a few, a subset of these that do. But God will command worship from the earthbound, not just those things that were created on days one through five, but also the crowning of his creation, if you will, day six. All categories of mankind are called to praise the Lord. Kings of the earth and all peoples, praise him. Princes and rulers of the earth, praise him. Young men, maidens together, old men and children, praise the Lord. Now as a foreshadowing of a day yet to come, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether willingly or broken before his sovereign authority and power on that final day, as an anticipation of these events to come, we see categories of mankind worshiping Jesus, even the advent of the incarnation. Was it not the kings from the east, as many speculate? Certainly foreign dignitaries that came following that beck and call that called to worship from the heavenly body, the star that came and offered expensive gifts and traveled that long distance and bowed before this baby, or at least this toddler, Jesus Christ, at the time. And what were these doing? They were fulfilling the word of Psalm 148. They were obeying the command and called to worship as kings of earth and different peoples, as princes and rulers, as foreign dignitaries, they came bearing gifts and sacrifices and praise to the Savior. Their eyes were open to His majesty and His sovereign power in spite of His diminutive status at that time, being taken on flesh, being born of a woman and just a young child at the day of their arrival. Ethnicities, many peoples, peoples from all over the world, praised the Lord in partial fulfillment of Psalm 148 when the apostles began to proclaim the news that Christ has ascended. And so the streets were filled in Jerusalem at the day of the Pentecost with the knowledge of the gospel going forth in tongues and languages. And converts were being baptized by the thousands to faith in Jesus Christ as partial fulfillment of these verses in Psalm 148 that all peoples of the earth will come and worship or are called to worship the Lord. And thus the Lord will have a representative from every tribe and tongue and nation, people who will praise Him on that glorious day. And it goes further, maidens, was Mary not a maiden who humbly submitted to the calling of the Lord in Luke 1.38, be it unto me according to your word. Older women, was Elizabeth not one of the older ones who likewise submitted to the word of the Lord and whose womb was resurrected to bear the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, echoing that glorious truth through the redemptive history 
that through a miraculous birth would come hope for mankind? Was Simeon not one of the old men who welcomed Jesus Christ in the temple and said, now I can die in peace having seen my Savior incarnate in my very arms? Was Zechariah, the elderly gentleman, at first chastened for his disbelief, but then saying his name is John and receiving back his lips or his ability to proclaim so that he can say, God has the power of resurrection in his right hand. And he opens and closes the womb, the power of his choosing. And my wife's very womb has praised the Lord and been obedient to him as he's called life out of what was once dead to proclaim through the servant John, this forerunner and this prophet that Christ has come. And so we see even up to the children crying out in the temple, Matthew 21, 15 through 16, the eyes of the littlest among us troubling the hearts of the elite. As the children are worshiping in the temple, Hosanna and echoing their praises, Psalm 8 and Psalm 148 were both fulfilled. Has not God perfected praise in the mouths of even the infants and the little ones such that it causes the rulers and the unrepentant princes and the leaders of society to fear what this might mean? And so it happened in the days of Jesus that all of the earthbound were called to bow before him and a representative of all mankind and representatives of all creation paused to worship the Lord, to bow before them, to declare their allegiance and obedience before the Lord of glory. Why? Because Yahweh commands from the heavenlies and from the earthbound worship because he is their creator and he is their savior. Final point today, verses 13 and 14. Yahweh commands worship because of salvation. Verse 13, let them praise the name of the Lord. And then we interject with why. And hear the scriptures answer. For his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints. For the people of Israel who are near to him, praise the Lord. The second reason for worship, adding to creation, is salvation. We worship the Lord because he has saved us. He has first loved us. He has moved heaven and earth to redeem us. He has sent the perfect substitute sacrifice to atone for our sins. We worship the Lord because that name that is the renown and the authority and the power and the legacy and the majesty and the worth and the works and the attributes of God himself in salvation is all summed up in that precious name above all names, Jesus Christ. This is the name that Paul writes in Philippians 2, 11 and 12, will be exalted above every other name and before it, every knee will bow. This is the name that was given to Joseph in those early moments of the advent and as a great closing cross-reference, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1 and learn about the name. When it, was for, when it first occurred to the adoptive father, if you will, of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, I'm sure an anxious and confused Joseph receives reassurance that surprised him much like it did the shepherds. Visitation of a celestial being, angel from the realm of glory, speaks to him as well. We pick up on this in Matthew 1, 20. 
But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name. What is it, kids? She'll call his name? Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 23, quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, what does it mean, kids? What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the name that is above all names, the name that was given by the Lord to ascribe to the Son, to identify the one who had come, the Savior of the world, by his adoptive father, Joseph. This is the name that was prophesied of old, and this is the name that compels us to praise. We praise the Lord because his name alone, the name of Jesus Christ, is exalted. Not another false hope or Savior, not another stand-in, or some competitor for promises for the future, not some lesser provisional covenant. There's a million false gods that pretend their name is awesome. No, but Christ's name alone is exalted. Therefore, let his people praise the name of the Lord. His majesty is above earth and heaven. Furthermore, this is illustrated by this picture. He has raised up, verse 14, a horn for his people. Praise for all saints, for the people of Israel who are near him. What is a horn? What's well, an ancient picture, an illustration of strength and assurance? A, horns, a horn is a means of overcoming strength. Think of like an oxen with those horns that represent his authority and dominance. If he's the biggest beast with that biggest rack of horns on his head, then he is the alpha. There's no one who can challenge him. And by means of these horns, which represent his superiority, he overcomes his enemies. Horns are a mean, are a horn is a means of overcoming strength. It's also the assurance of salvation. And this was prophesied of old. Mary's song is called the Magnificat and exalts the Lord, praises the Lord for exalting the lowly and bringing down, humiliating the proud. Her song was preceded by Hannah's song. Hannah sung on her behalf and prophetically of Mary to come as well. Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2 verse 1 and closing in verse 10 uses that horn imagery twice. Hannah sings of a horn represented by the birth of her prophet son Samuel, but fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ, as Christ is our means of overcoming strength. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. If he is stronger than the grave, then what do we have to fear? In him and his horn of salvation, stomping on the serpent's head, destroying the work of the, of the enemy, and paying for our sins, we have the assurance of our salvation. Finally, this is the inheritance of a people, a name, a horn, and a people. Because of salvation, we praise the Lord. He has raised up a horn for who? His people. Praise for who? All his saints. And again, for the people of Israel who are near to him, praise the Lord. This is another name of Jesus fulfilled. Emmanuel, 
those who are near to God, God with us. Israel, a called and chosen covenant-bound people. Saints, those who have been washed clean of the stain of sin, justified by the righteousness of Christ through the power of His blood. His people, He owns us, we are His. We are slaves to Christ and slaves to righteousness. He has staked a claim and paid a high price for us. Therefore, in that redemption, in that work of reconciling us, buying us back, we are His. And this is who praises the Lord, ultimately speaking. Though all are called to praise, and creation itself gives a limited expression, there is a further, deeper, and more profound expression reserved for those who are made in the image of God. And it is an absolute tragedy that at this given time in Earth's history, most of the image bearers of God on this planet remain blind to the glory of His kingdom come. It strikes me on that day when the shepherds were visited and their eyes were opened, they were a small subset. We were remarking on this in morning prayer this morning, likely mocked and marginalized and dismissed, yet they went faithfully and proclaimed what they had heard and seen to all who would hear. It isn't that Christ has not come. It isn't that he isn't king. It isn't that his kingdom has come to earth and is increasingly manifest among us. It isn't that there is a purpose and a design and a decree and an ultimate precise purpose for history. It's that most of the image bearers of God are blind to this reality in their sin. And there's nothing more foolish than this state of being. One of my favorite quotes is from J.C. Ryle. Surely there are none so mad as those who live unprepared to die. Surely there is none so mad as those who live unprepared to die. The day of reckoning, where we stand before our Creator, is assuredly on that day of our death. And how mad is it? How delusional, how, how insane, how rebellious, how psychotic to live without a thought or denying that reality in the first place, or seeking escape, a, a, a life of escape or denial to put off that day of reckoning. If your eyes have been opened to the glories of the gospel in Jesus Christ, it is a miracle indeed. God has broken through the hard and dead exterior that refused to let him in by the power of his Holy Spirit. And you were able to see, just as the shepherds did, that Christ is worthy of your praise and worthy of your submission, and he has died for your sins. But for those of us who fall into that category by his mercy and grace alone, we, like the shepherds of old, now join that cosmic invocation, if you will. We are called to call the world to worship, to call our families to praise the Almighty. What a great vision for family worship. Call our family together, sit in the living room, to praise the one who has died for us. And as we do so, we're like those shepherds of old, and we're like the angels in the realms of glory who proclaim, praise the Lord, praise Him from the heavens, praise Him in the heights, praise Him angels and hosts. But more than this, praise Him, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and rulers of the earth, young men, maidens, old men, children. And furthermore, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted, His majesty is above earth and heaven. And of all of these categories, most of all, let him be praised among his saints. The people of Israel who are near to him, praise the Lord. And let's say those three words in unison once again, saints. Here we go. One, two, three. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, our confession of praise this day 
echoing the commandment of Scripture. I pray that it would be written on the tables of our hearts and that it would be applied through our walk and our commitments to you. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the proclamation of your word and our growing faith and understanding to the realities and glories of the incarnation and all that is connected to this glorious truth. I pray that as you do so, that we would dutifully, willingly, joyfully join the call from glory to worship the Creator, Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, for the lost among us, perhaps in our families, among friends and relatives, we might encounter them this season. For those that we may work with or encounter in our day-to-day affairs, I pray that they would see in us, Lord, and that we would be ready, should they ask, to give a reason for the hope within, to testify to the true and the powerful and the glorious, majestic and exalted name of Jesus Christ above every name before which every knee must bow. Thank you, Lord, for the great privilege of announcing these truths. I pray that your spirit would equip us as we seek to grow in this call, joining the angels from the realms of glory. Behold this day, Christ calls you to turn to him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.